0: A lot's changed. I feel like since you know, since it's come out and since the first season and stuff, because actually people know now. And as much as I wasn't trying to hide it, it's been kind of weird because I didn't realize it was weird.
1: <laughs> well, when you say th- things have changed, do you mean people treat you differently now that they know you have an illustrious past that you were weirdly hiding for so long? I mean, I'm sorry to say weirdly. It's not. I'm sure you had your reasons. <laughs> if you didn't think. It was, okay, but just, yeah, tell me, how how has your life changed?
0: It feels like things have been unleashed, you know, like I feel really open to talk with people, whereas before it was just sort of a weird tick that I kind of had throughout my life of working with bands and like, you know, going to help Guar go stitch up their costumes and then, you know, getting to Europe and recording with the Rolling Stones and then had dinner with Buckethead and then things like that and then I just thought that was
1: like a normal okay I I don't mean to cut you off but a weird tip never (laughs) mind you have listen (laughs) you conducted your life the way you conducted your life and I'm just glad that you've let me in on this secret uh whatever your reasons for keeping this a weird secret I, I I appreciate that it's out in the open now and that and you've brought me with you on
2: this journey you're listening to a conversation between Scott Jacobson a lover of in memoriams and Tamara Federici producer of every band ever already in progress.
1: There have been a lot of high profile, uh, deaths lately of, of musicians, uh, people who are beloved, you know, people who I love there's, you know, Burt Bacharach died recently. He's, uh, he was 94 years old. It's not, not a shock. David Crosby, also an elderly man who lived a life of, um, you know, pushing the limits of his body. It's not a shock that he would pass away at, uh, at any age it wouldn't have been a shock several decades ago but then there's um you know there's ones that hit harder for me like there's a uh, true the dove from de la soul and uh tom Verlaine, who was you know he was a, a distinguished older man but he's he was an elderly so i just wanted to discuss some of, of these guys and just first of all I, have you worked with any of them
0: i mean of course I, scott i worked with all of them
1: wow then I have a lot of questions. I really I, a lot of stuff that I want to talk about. Um, I mean, Tom Verlaine, So you know, I have been a, a big fan of television for as long as I've had like consciousness of that like era of punk music in New York City. You, you could call him a one album wonder if you are being very uncharitable. I love a lot of his solo stuff, and I love the second and even the third television albums. But really, there's this one towering achievement of his, Marquee Moon. And I'm wondering, uh, I'm sure you, you, you got to know them probably after that, right?
0: Oh, no, no, no. I was helping out with Marquis Moon. Like, that was right, you know, I was around when they were building CBGB, you know, when they were actually putting in the planks and putting in the floorboards and actually making that. So I introduced Tom Verlaine to Richard Hell. You know, like they met at school, but I made sure that that happened, you know? Like, they, Wait, suggested they met at school. A game-
1: they but you made home. sure okay, and and so you were there while they were. So you have like construction stories of, of CBGBs. You were just there in the beginning, but you like like when they installed that that infamous lone toilet in the back. Were you there for that?
0: Yeah, I told them not to pick that toilet. It's a bad toilet. They need to pick a better toilet. But yeah, getting them together was. You know, it's pretty easy to get two dudes to play a game of two square. You know. And then from that, they just kind of were like an awkward an awkward dude. And then, um, you know, Tom Verlaine is an awkward, angly dude. And then Richard Hell, you might know the story already, um, but no. they... Okay, so right, Richard Hell actually, <laughs> he had like a ripped up shirt. And then he walked over to Verlaine and he just like ripped his shirt in three different places. And one party he ripped it in was a nipple, so that a nipple was hanging out. And then he said... Now you look right.
1: He said he ripped open Richard Hell's shirt to expose Richard Hell's nipple and then said, now you no, look. No, just
0: in the nipple part. Right. And he said, now you look right.
1: right. And
0: from there.
1: I mean, that's a great Tom Verlaine quote that I wasn't even aware existed. Now you look right. Yeah. So Marky Moon came along. I, I know that Richard Hell was kicked out of the band. Maybe you have some insight into that, or maybe it's one of those things that it's still a little bit too raw to talk about. I don't know.
0: Richard Hill actually, like, recorded some of the vocals and then they kind of just cut cut him out of that. Um, but I think what we, you know, what we should focus on, I guess, because it's, it is the in memoriam, is sort of uh, that Verlaine was such an amazing guitarist and that he was recognized in his time of being, like, so amazing. And, you know, he went through a long period of learning how to really get that guitar sound that he wanted you know
1: very distinctive guitar sound yeah very influential he didn't really do blues licks not a lot of string bends it was uh, very kind of clean and technical sounding
0: yeah and he started out with a sound that was kind of like um you know he would kind of wrap actually both hands around the neck of the guitar and it was called choke the monkey and so when he was just starting to to develop his sound, he would actually, like, choke the monkey. And um, it sounds crazy. Like, it's really a weird, um, not nice sound.
1: No. And that's what he was, that's what he was basing his sound around in the early days?
0: Yeah, but it was really early. Like, he smoothed it out and kind of jangled it out, you know, like, kind of like, I mean, Patti Smith called it, like, a thousand, a thousand birds or something like that.
1: Right, yes, very eloquent. <laughs>
0: it was, but it was more like, you know, just him working it out like he really figured out this bizarre way to play well, let me and, ask you something um, oh sorry, me, sorry, sorry yeah no 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 go ahead
1: oh sorry i i, I mean patty smith uh she, she was around then she you know famously dated tom verlaine you and patty smith both you know very headstrong you know personalities i'm wondering if if you got along or if you ever clash uh, what was what was your experience with her
0: you know, I was all right with her. She, she's very headstrong. Um, she's just a funny person who puts together words that are, you know, very, can be very romantic or can be very, I don't know. This is this is one that I found was that she said, he's blessed with long-veined hands, reminiscent of the great poet stranger, Jack the Ripper.
1: Wow. She's comparing his hands to, how does she know what Jack the Ripper's hands look like, first of all?
0: Yeah, that was very, so I didn't like the murderer. Aspect of that quote very much, and then I started thinking about like what would, what would Patty Smith's um, Playgirl magazine look like <laughs> if she was to edit Playgirl magazine? What would that even be like, <laughs> and what would the pictures be like inside?
1: Yeah, she has a talent for words that are very—they're so erotic that they almost douse any kind of <laughs> romance. She she can overdo it sometimes. Um I don't know if you found that to be true, if that's just me.
0: I find that she just uh I really like her a lot, but I find that everything sounds like a memory, even like ordering from a menu, always sounds like kind of a distant, foggy memory of of uh, <laughs> yesteryear when it's just like fries. Yeah,
1: you she's I mean? there's a lot of much poetry in everything she says and does. Um well, so they you were there for Marky Moon. You were the, I mean, I know that Brian Eno was the original producer who was brought in. Was that Did that pose problems for you or were you not involved at that point?
0: No, I was involved. Usually they just come, it, they asked me to come in and do more, you know, do a little bit more than what was happening. So that was fine. And a lot of times I'm uncredited. So that worked out great. I mean, I he, sometimes he knows I'm working with him and sometimes he doesn't. <laughs>
1: Sometimes you're not even. Is the band even aware that you're there?
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely okay. the band is inviting me in. I'm not doing it without their permission.
1: Good. Well, I would good because that clears some things up. I, I was thinking maybe you producing these bands was something that was known only to you for a second. <laughs> that that would be that would ex- both explain things, but also I I don't want to think that
0: It be ethically bad.
1: Yeah. So he was maybe sometimes aware that you were in the room, but sometimes, I mean, that makes sense. Brian, you know, kind of a self-absorbed guy, you know, a real creative dynamo. He might get just kind of swept up in the, the, the moment in the studio and not even be aware that there's someone else there who's mainly who's producing the album. But I know that the band wasn't happy with Brian, you versions of the songs. And so I imagine that that's probably when, you know, you got um, got a promotion.
0: Yeah, I I said that they should experiment more with. Uh, I was like, why not make it longer? Let's make it ten minutes. You know, like let's let's go longer. That was you. Yeah, that's how they became ten minutes, seventeen minutes live. You know, one time there was like a half an hour one, but that was too long. I would say that that is truly a jam band.
1: So you were trying to keep them on the correct side of like jam band or not jam band. If it's ten minutes, then it's just cool, like psychedelic exploration, but. What What is the minute mark where it becomes jam band?
0: It's an interesting question. I would say when you're sort of ready to leave the venue, that's a jam band. Before then, it's still a song.
1: <laughs> See, that right there is probably why the people have you in the room. You don't want to be on the wrong side of the jam band, you know, runtime.
0: It's a dial. It's really a dial.
1: But you know the thing about the the band yeah they they're kind of known for their kind of long form guitar explorations, but really, like that album, people are surprised when they hear it for the first time how catchy the songs were. I mean, did you have any any hand in in helping to shape those songs?
0: yeah i um sometimes I just ask them to find an emotion, and then I'll be like, "Pretend you're shocked, but then you find out you're not. uh what does a teapot feel like? Be lightning for a second and then don't. And then, you know, things like that, where it's sort of like only music can bring that out. You know, you can't really write it out. You can only like...
1: You know, Brian Eno has a set of cards with just little, you know, cryptic suggestions that you're supposed to use in the studio when you find yourself creatively stuck. He calls it oblique strategies. Sounds like you have some of your own oblique strategies. Could you give me more? Pretend that you're lightning and then don't is a great one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you can hear that on Marky Moon. It's just
1: definitely you know, that moments he that are very goes light, there yeah. and
0: then doesn't. Yeah, I will bring him a call into the studio, and I will be interpret what this macaw is thinking, and then it'll musically come out, and then we let him loose, and then everyone's running. But also, I say, don't stop playing; just run, run for your life.
1: Wow, that's you know that's interesting. Do you mind if we switch gears? I, I love talking. I mean that era in music and in you know New York City in the '70s is is great, but there's another like legend that we lost recently in very different genre, uh, Burt Bacharach, and yeah. you know Burt was kind of from the old school and really his heyday came before the Beatles. I mean, you know he had hits going into the '80s, but you could say that uh, really you know his his his. his High point came, you know, in the early '60s, and you know, I know that uh, you're not that old, and so I'm imagining you don't have a whole lot to do with uh, Bert Bacharach.
0: Oh, sure, I have a ton to do with. I mean, as in, I've worked with him a lot. I would say that he was one of the people who he's very self-generated. Like you know, like hundreds, hundreds of songs and such a long career. But I did work with him a lot. I just honestly didn't understand working with him. Like I. A lot of people, I feel like, I kind of get them. But Burt Bacharach, part of our relationship was me mostly saying, "What are you talking about? What are you talking about?" You know, like so. That was most mostly, and he just was like.
1: So he wasn't a very clear communicator. Is that what you're saying?
0: He is. It's just it was strange to not be totally in control of somebody's vision, not not be able to uh, help help them help them along. He was more like he's more like, "Damn, I got this. I got this."
2: He almost like, so he didn't want you to a... be there. So you
1: worked with him a lot, but he he was trying to push you out of the room. I worked
0: with him a lot. It's one of those things where we didn't we didn't see eye to eye a lot. And a lot of times it was just like, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would do that, but you do it. You've got the Burt Bacharach magic. Do you know what I mean? Like, obviously he's, he's huge, but. Um...
1: I see how some of your techniques, like maybe bringing a Macaw into the room and setting it free and and letting it cause chaos, that might have rubbed a guy like Burt Bacharach the wrong way. He seemed to be like a... Um, exactly. Yeah. So it was it was maybe some of your, you know, I'm not going to say out there, more out there techniques, but I, I imagine being in the studio with Burt Bacharach would mean like a snifter of brandy or something and, you know, low lighting and just kind of a bachelor pad kind of aura. And maybe you're coming in and you're, you know, possibly bringing wildlife and and, and it just was a clash.
0: It was, but his, his overall statement to me that he, he, when I said, what kind of a vision do you want me to bring to this thing? And he was like, I want to make music that feels like a luncheon, but That's how nice. do you make something that sounds like a luncheon? So I think from the start, I knew that oh, yeah, was a What did a he mean
1: by that? What do you think he meant by that?
0: I think he meant it's easy. Nothing's going to get crazy. We're going to go on a, we're going to go on a ride that has a rhythm like a luncheon. You know, it's sort of, we're going to sit down. Oh, is a luncheon a nice different time. than a lunch?
1: Yes. He just yes, called it luncheon. it's more leisurely. Oh, it's more leisurely.
0: A luncheon. Yeah, yeah. A lunch is more like a bucket and a pail and a sandwich. This okay, is all like, right. This is Bert
1: Bacharach. So it's a little was,
0: more, more, right. It's, uh, it's tablecloth. More it's cloth napkins. Right. It's that type of a thing. It's Did you pick up on that immediately? It? You
1: just knew what he was talking about when he said luncheon?
0: I did, I just didn't know how to deliver it to him. So that became, uh, you know, sort of over over decades, sort of what we kept doing in different
1: ways, you know? Did you ever feel like you were a tight team with him?
0: No, I never felt like I was a tight team with him. I felt like sometimes he would um, want direction and in the Bacharach direction, it was like, sometimes the for like What's New Pussycat or something, it was like, just be aggressive. You now be more aggressive, you know, like, it was a different type of thing where I feel like my instincts are more like Aretha Franklin, but with him, it was more like, you're going to really hit into this stuff. Like raindrops keep falling on my head is a, it's ridiculous to me. It doesn't make any sense that any human would come up with that, but he did. And it is like, let's work with it. Let's see what he can do. And
1: um, so you're trying to talk him out of raindrops keep falling on my head.
0: Yeah. And it wasn't only me. It was, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. It was the Sundance Kid.
1: <laughs> the Sundance it was, Kid, too? Robert Redford?
0: The Sundance Kid, too, was like, yeah, Robert Redford was like, I don't know about this. And then, um, you know, like 40 years later, he turned around and was like, yeah, it's the right thing. But I'm still surprised. It's like the charisma of, of Burt Bacharach won out over everything, you know? Just it, it's a silly song, and it, I guess it works because it's him, but that's his magic is that it was sort of like, you know, at the end of the day, let's go with what you're doing because it's working. But it was an interesting collaboration to sort of admit that I felt on the outside of the luncheon, not not on the inside.
1: Wow. Uh, yeah. It's. I guess that must be strange for you because you're used to feeling like a very close collaborator with these people who you work with.
0: Yeah, I feel like I'm. Fo- I'm uh, fostering. <laughs> I'm fostering something with him. I felt like I'm just keeping him afloat.
1: Well, yeah, I could talk about Burt Backrack all day, but I mean, there are just, there's so many, um, you know, legends who we've lost recently, including David Crosby. But I mean, he was, he has been in the public eye for a long time, not only for being a musician and, and a great musician, you know, never, I, I'm, I, can't, I have to be upfront with you. I know that you probably were friends with him, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well then I, I, I'm, I'm just going to admit that I was not a huge fan, um, of his music. But uh, I, you know, I've always admired his contributions to, say, The Birds. There's an an early solo album of his that I enjoy a lot, If I Could Only Remember My Name. You know, but mostly when I was growing up, I knew him as a figure in, like, the tabloids. He was always in trouble. You know, he was always swept up in some kind of, you know, cocaine bust or weapons charge. And I I, I was, I'm wondering if you knew him during that very tumultuous period in his life. And if you ever got caught up in that stuff.
0: I did never get caught up in it, but uh, definitely um, it was sort of a whirlwind. Um, you know, it was, I, I tried to stay out of like the drug scene, but he did have a bunch of snakes in his basement and that was uh, uncomfortable. And I didn't know what to do with those because what do you do with snakes? And like, who does that? Like, why would you?
1: Why would you? Well, so what? but you can answer, what did he do with them?
0: Well, we finally had to call animal control and get them out. And oh, so uh, he didn't want could, them there. You know, were
1: snakes that happened to be infesting his basement?
0: He actually wanted them there. Uh, but I think it was like we knew that this, this was uh, not helpful to the music. You know, uh, Snakes just take up your time yeah, at the end of the day. They're true. just time sucks.
1: That's true. <laughs> they, they're, yeah, they're pets that need a lot of attention. And maybe he found himself like slacking off in the music department because he was finding rats for them.
0: Right. He just wanted to name them mostly. And that that wasn't what we had time for. We had time for music or naming snakes, not both.
1: Were there ever any close calls with like, he had a lot of celebrity friends who would drop by. Anybody uh, run afoul of the snakes or while you were there to the best of your knowledge?
0: Yeah. You know what? Uh, Peter Tork ran afoul of the snakes and he paid the price, you know? Oh, yeah. That's That's a replacement nose. That's awful. Yeah. So that's unfortunate. But you know.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, there when you live that way, there there are casualties and I'm I'm sad to hear that Peter Tork, who seemed like a very gentle sort of soul, was one of them. Well, I I don't I want to bring up the mood first. Sec- I'm sorry. Like I I didn't want it to get, you know, get bogged down in all this very heavy snake talk. But um, you know, he he had a comeback and um It it, it was really a remarkable story. And at the end of his career, this guy's turning like 80 years old and he's, um, or at least late 70s, I can't remember exactly, but he started this string of new solo albums and tours. And he seemed really creatively uh, reinvigorated. And I just wondered if you were, you know, there for any of that.
0: I was, I was. I want to back up and just, because we were talking about Peter Tork, can I, uh, I just... If anything happened to you at his house and I just
1: yeah please no I'm fascinated
0: he used to date Joni Mitchell right just for a little bit and she wrote a breakup song about him and she unveiled it at Peter Tork's house and all David Crosby knew was that she was unveiling a new song so he was really excited and all of the celebrity friends are sitting around you know with the snakes in the basement and everybody you know being resting sleeping maybe and then she sings it and he realizes it's a breakup song but I actually helped her write that breakup song.
2: Really? So
0: this was the first draft, yeah. David Crosby, you're right. always on me. Hey, pretends to toss a sandwich. Go get it. I'm breaking up with you. I'm breaking up with you. Crosby, that's you. Then somebody says, one more time. And then she sings it again. <laughs> and, that's, and that's how he knew he got dumped.
1: Wow. Well, that bears... That the unmistakable stamp of Joni Mitchell's poetry. Uh, so that's that's how she that's kind of cold.
0: It's super cold, but a little awesome.
1: That's <laughs> yeah, kind of cool, too. And I'll bet you anything that David, I mean, David Crosby had it coming. Probably.
2: Scott Jacobson is a writer and executive producer on Bob's Burgers, which is currently in its 13th season. He has also written for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Tamara Federici is rhyming and/or stealing. The producer and editor is Will Velasquez. The audio engineer is Clark Jackson. Executive producers are Carl W. Adams and Tamara Federici. Hell yes, we have interns. Mary Lear and Jonah Katz. Mirror, mirror on the wall, tell me, mirror, what is wrong? Can it be my day la clothes? Or is it just my day la soul? Find our Instagram, Patreon, Substack, merch, and more through the link tree in the episode description.